Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Have you ever been the victim of a limited perspective? Now, I don't know everything, but I'm fairly certain from my own experience that if you walk into a hotel room or an Airbnb that you've rented for the night, you do not want to see a bathtub in the middle of the living room. A couple years ago, Courtney and I were attending a church leadership conference, and the, the weeks leading up to that were fairly intense and fairly weighty. You see, I had just left a job that I'd had for 10 years that had paid me a salary, and now I was fundraising and trying to plant a church, and Courtney was working as hard as ever, and so I was so excited that we were attending this conference. I was excited about the conference itself, but more so I was excited to spend just a couple nights away with her. And so I had got onto Airbnb, secured accommodations. We went to the conference all day. And then at the end, I started to look ahead and started to think like, okay, we're going to get back to our uh, place for the night. Then we're going to go get something to eat. It's going to be amazing. We're going to get to spend some time together. Uh, the kids are well taken care of. This is going to be awesome. And I start pulling up the directions and I, you know, just have that first inclination that maybe things are not going to go as well as I think. You see, I don't know why I had not considered how big Manhattan is, especially when you're trying to get around the city, but the conference was meeting in Midtown and I had booked a place in the, in the East Village, which was quite a train ride away, especially a train ride at rush hour in the city. And so already, after a long and exhausting day, I have not started things off well. And then it's one of those things where you can just feel things getting worse and unraveling. You see, we get off at the subway stop, I pull up my Maps app, and I'm like, wow, we're still like a, a, you know, an eighth of a mile away from where we're staying. And as we keep getting closer to the destination, a place I've never seen before, I just have that feeling of impending and increasing doom that's sort of taking over. I just have this sense that things aren't going well. And I also have this sense that Courtney has a little bit of an inkling that things are not going well as well. You know, you start to question the person leading you. Uh, is this person taking me to a, a good place? As Courtney is starting to, to sort of project those vibes and I am catching them and I am feeling them. We get to the building, nothing is getting any better. We walk up the stairs, we open the door. I am just praying that things will start to take a turn. And there it is, in the middle of the living room, a bathtub. As we lay in bed that night, and literally, like the bed is as big as the room. Like there is no place to walk around. You walk in the door and you're in, in the bed. And as we lay in the bedroom that night, I'm just praying that Courtney is sleeping next to me as I listen to the rats scurry literally around us. And I think to myself and I call out to God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why in the midst of this really tough season has my own limited perspective caused me to put us in this horrible situation? Well, the good news is, and the way the story concludes is the next day we went to the conference and I am desperate. I'm just praying. I'm like, Lord, I know like you, you work miracles. Maybe somebody at this conference will just give us a room for the night or something amazing will happen. 
I start looking through my old uh, hotel credits and stuff, and I realize I have a free room through Hotels Tonight or Hotel.com. And so I booked that thing so fast and we stayed in a proper lodging the following night and got to enjoy just a sliver of rest. But it was one of those moments where I looked at the pictures online in the Airbnb and even just like having a suits from the neighborhood, I was like, oh, this will be so fun. And it just wasn't at all. And it wasn't at all what I thought it was going to be. My own limited perspective caused me a lot of pain. And we, last week we started a series exploring wisdom and basically just asking the question, if, if everything around us has changed, what, what are some things that we can lean into that never change? What are some, uh, some timeless approaches to life that we can begin to encounter? And last week we introduced this discussion of wisdom and why it's so important for right now. Because as, as much as these may be uncharted waters, life and a life that flourishes before God is not uncharted. It is a map that has been handed to us. And so we want to take that map and, and transpose it into our day and into our time. And I began a discussion on what it means to fear God. And, and the basic takeaway from that talk was that fear of the Lord is the experience of God's awe-inspiring power in the embrace of his never-ending love. And I introduced the question simply and sort of uh, as a way of, of moving into our next couple of weeks of discussions, simply, do we fear the Lord? Do we have a, a concept and an understanding of that? Because as the Proverbs tell us in Proverbs 1 verse 7, fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And so this week, we're going to continue our discussion. It's kind of a three-part talk. So last week, introduced this concept of fear of the Lord. This week, we're going to look a little bit more tangibly at what that means. And then next week, we're going to lean into four areas that, that Proverbs lines out and says, this is what it looks like to fear God. And so I want to establish a framework for us because Proverbs puts this as the foundation. You want wisdom? Fear of the Lord is the place that you begin. And so I want to begin exploring and understanding this and living this out in a healthy way, what it means to fear God, not as a God who's cold or distant or judgmental, but as a God who truly is God and sovereign and beautiful, but also is inviting us into his presence. I, I love this concept of fear of the Lord. And I love what Tim Keller says about it. He says, the only person, the only person bold enough to wake a king at night for a drink of water is a child. And I think that encapsulates so much of this sense of fear of the Lord and the framework that we want to work from as we explore this concept. And this week, I want to illustrate a very simple principle about fear of the Lord, and thus, as Proverbs says, about wisdom. To fear God is to embrace limits. You see, the Proverbs begin with this call in Proverbs 1 verse 7, that fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And it says the fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then Solomon proceeds to demonstrate the end and what awaits for those who do not fear God. Look at Proverbs 1, beginning in verse 10. My child, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us wantonly ambush the innocent. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. 
We shall find all kinds of costly things. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My child, do not walk in their way. Keep your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil, and they hurry to shed blood. For in vain is the net baited while the bird is looking on. Yet they lie in wait, but they lie in wait to kill themselves. Yet they set an ambush, but the ambush is set for their own lives. You see, Solomon declares that those who walk in the way of sinners, the way that is antithetical and opposite of the way of the fear of the Lord, they're, they're, they think they're setting an ambush for others. They think that they've taken a trap and laid it out for others and that they're going to gain from that. But in the end, as verse 18 says, they lie in wait to kill themselves and set an ambush for their own lies. And verse 19 of Proverbs chapter 1 summarizes this all very succinctly and very blink, bleakly. Solomon writes, such is the end of all who are greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. And it's this notion, this notion of being greedy for gain that we want to begin with today. Because this, in, in, in a very succinct way, talks about what is the opposite of the fear of the Lord? Well, it's being greedy for gain. Now, you may be sitting there saying, well, I, I'm not greedy. I simply want to provide a, a, enough for my family or those around me. Uh, that's not really too much to ask in the eyes of God, is it? And the answer is, of course, no. But th that's not where it's really at the heart of the proverb here. What's at the heart of the proverb is those who are greedy for gain is a greed of life without boundaries. Now, nothing being off limits to us. And this is what Wendell Berry, the prophet and the poet and the essayist, has described as the, the disease of limitlessness. And Berry describes this in detail. He says, the normalization of the doctrine and the disease of limitlessness has produced a sort of moral minimalism. The desire to be efficient at any cost, to be unencumbered by complexity. The minimization of neighborliness, respect, reverence, responsibility, accountability, and self-subordination. This is the culture of which our present leaders and heroes are the spoiled children. Now think about the world that we live in. So much of it is about choice. But, but within every choice, inherent in every choice, is a sense of limits. Now, think about these things. Uh, the life that you have in your current state. In our uniquely free society, we have the ability to choose so much. Uh, you, many of us have chosen where we live. Uh, most of you, if not all of you who went to college, chose the major that you studied. Uh, you chose the person that you uh, may be your spouse. Now, you don't get to choose other pieces of your family, but, but there's so many things that are major components of our life that we chose, that we made a volitional decision to move towards. And each choice along the way has been a yes to something, and hopefully, and you know, prayerfully, a very good thing, but also a no to a lot of other things. When we say yes to marry one person, we say no to marrying every other person. We, we enter into a covenant, and so much of our, our freedom is expressed actually in limitations. Now, think about this on an even deeper level. Those are the things that we're able to have some say in. Now, think about the, the, the mental capacity that you have. 
the body that you live your life in with, with genes and with uh, predispositions that were handed down to you from your parents and your grandparents, uh, your ability to manage anxiety and stress, the time that you have in any given day, all of these represent limits that you have not chosen. These are limits that were handed to you. Different capacities, different limits that, that are a part of living life. They're simply a fact of life. And the Proverbs, in declaring at once that they hold the key to wisdom and to knowledge, immediately tell us that fear of the Lord is the foundation of that knowledge. Anything that we can gain, any sense of life and a proper uh, perspective on life that we can attain, begins with fear of the Lord. And what they're reminding us of, the Proverbs themselves, is that to be human is to be a creature of limits. We live in a world that tells us that we can choose whatever we want. Now, maybe you've had this experience. Courtney and I often, at the end of the day, after the kids are in bed, I'll ask her, Courtney, would you like to watch a movie? And she'll say, yes, what do you want to watch? And I'll say, I don't don't care. And she'll say, well, pick something. And I will pull open Netflix and I will scroll through it. I will scroll to the side of, you know, new and noteworthy or comedies or dramas, action and adventure. I will scroll down to the bottom and I will be so overcome with exhaustion and indecision and not really feeling like I want to watch any of these movies. And I will turn on The Office for the 15 millionth time. Or if you've had the impulse to listen to music, you pull up on Spotify and you're like, well, what can I listen to? I could literally listen to anything that has ever been recorded. Our life in our culture, in so many ways in America, is built upon this limitlessness of choice. That we're never encumbered or fettered by our decisions. That there's always a new possibility. That we can always work out a new decision. Stephen Hall, in his book titled Wisdom, tells of the experiments of Dr. Laura Cartenson, a Stanford psychologist who studies emotions, who instituted an experiment where they outfitted a bunch of Northern California residents with beepers, and they would send random pages to those who had the beepers, and the agreement was that anybody participating in the study, when they received a page, would drop everything that they were doing and fill out an emotional survey and questionnaire. And they were trying to gauge like the range of emotions that people experience. And they were also trying to gauge like how that uh, was reflected in different stages of life, different ages, what kinds of emotions were present in different generations, those kinds of things. And what they have found in their laboratory experiments and through explorations like the beeper test is that older people seem to experience negative emotions much less frequently than younger people. And they exercise better control over those emotions. When they do experience negative emotions, they're able to bounce back quite quickly. And so how can older people, especially in an American culture, where older people are often treated as irrelevant or marginalized by the the, the kind of cultural ethos, how can these older people experience less in the way of negative emotions? Cardinson proposes that successful emotional regulation is tightly connected to a person's sense of time. Usually, but not always, time as it is reflected by one's age and stage of life. She goes on to say, 
When your time perspective shortens, as it does when you come closer to the ends of things, you tend to focus on emotionally meaningful goals. When the time horizon is long, you focus on knowledge acquisition. And what Cardson is describing here is that older people have embraced that they have less of their life ahead of them. And so they're living more presently in the moment. Stephen Hall also describes that this was true of those who endured the SARS outbreak uh, in, in Southeast Asia, that many of them exhibited the qualities of wisdom that often come from having a shortened time horizon. And, and Cartinson talks about uh, for those who have a longer, what's called a time horizon, aka being young, we focus on acquiring knowledge and experiences, and this often feeds into an array of negative emotions and often dwelling on the negativity of our experiences. And it's interesting that the Proverbs from the very beginning are cast as the instructions of a wise sage, of somebody who's experienced a lot of life, of a generation that is overflowing with experience and knowledge, but is short on time. The instruction begins as a call of a father uh, the instructions of a father to his son, the teaching of a mother to a, a daughter to hear, that wisdom is calling out in the streets, that wisdom cries out to whoever will hear it at the busiest corner. And the Proverbs' foremost goal is to get us to accept the gift of life that is life in our own time, in our own place, in our own moment, and as we drill down to that even deeper, in our own skin. The Proverbs are calling to mind the, the reality and the sin of the first couple in the Garden of Eden and the Ten Commandments as foundations for living a life before God and a life in the world. You see, Eve saw in Genesis chapter 3 the fruit from the tree that God had forbidden. And if you go back to those early foundational stories, what you see is that God was not overly burdensome in placing limits. He tells the couple in Genesis chapter 2, he says to them, Look, I've planted an incredible garden. It's a garden overflowing with beauty. Every tree in this garden I give to you. I give it to you for food. I give it to you for your enjoyment. Just don't eat from this one tree. And you see that the boundaries that God sets up are not overly uh, tyrannical. God is not trying to put people in their place. He's saying, look, this is what it means to be human. Everything that I've made for your enjoyment that is a blessing to you, you can enjoy. But this, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not good for you. And so do not transgress that limit. Do not cross that line. But when Eve sees the fruit from the tree and sees that it is desirable for making one wise, both her and her husband take and they eat from the tree. And what they find is not some intoxicating wisdom, not some next level, uh, level of knowledge. What they find is shame. What they find is blame. What they find is, is that there's a curse that they have brought upon themselves. The Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, found in Exodus chapter 20, form the contents of the covenant between God, the God who rescues the people out of slavery in Egypt, and ransoms a people for himself. 
The Ten Commandments start with God. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. Don't make images of the God who cannot be imaged. The God who is named, I am that I am. Even his name sort of transgresses limits. Don't make, uh, don't carry my name in vain. Then the commandments move into the relationships between human beings. What does it mean to live a life that honors God, that puts him first? What does it mean to not carry the name of the Lord in vain? Well, it means treating our mother and our father with honor. It means not killing one another, not not lashing out in violence at one another. It means not stealing. It means not lying about other people. It means not trying to take one another's spouse. All of these things are sort of the baseline of what it means to be the people before God. And then the last commandment says this, do not covet. Do not want what your neighbor has. Now we tend to think of this in material terms. Like you see your neighbor's car in the driveway and you're not supposed to want that. And that's, that's part of this. But more so, this is about looking at other people's lives and assuming that they somehow have some greater blessing or some greater experience with God than you have been given. You know, we experience this so viscerally in our social media culture because so much of social media is, is glossed over, is filtered, it's highlights. You look at the best moments of other people's lives and you compare them with the worst moments of your own life. You see, we're always present to the pain that is in our life. And when we bring that and we see other people like just in joy and in happiness or having experiences that we can't afford or can't, uh, can't go on because we're, we have different levels of responsibility or different things going on in our life, we then compare our lives to others. And this is so much about what it means to covet. To covet somebody else's life is to try to, to transgress the boundaries of our own life. To, to say to God that it is not good that you made me in this way. You should have made me that way. And the Proverbs are trying to invite us back to the gift that is life in not only our time and our space, in this place that we live in, in this community with these people, but with the very mix of gifts, of personality, of Enneagram type, whatever you want to say, the very mix of what it means to be us. To, to refract the image of God, the light that God has shown in this world in a very unique and specific way, a way that has not been repeated throughout the history of the world. The Proverbs at their heart are trying to get us, not simply to embrace the gift of limits, but to embrace what it means to be us made in the image of God, to be you as a, as a daughter and a son as a gift that God has given to the world. And this is what Proverbs 1.19 is trying to, trying to show us in all of its bleakness about those who are greedy for gain. They have not accepted the particular lives that God has given them. They have not acknowledged them as a gift before God. So, so those greedy for gain set out to infringe upon the lives of others through violence, through false dealing, through lust, through restlessness. They live out the disease of limitlessness and they find no freedom there. Much like Eve when she eats the, the tree from the garden, much like Adam as he uh, tastes the, the fruit uh, from the tree on his lips. What he finds is not some intoxicating sense of wisdom. What he finds is shame. Like Mephistopheles says to Dr. Faust, 
It is hell that has no limits. Like C.S. Lewis's images of the dead and the great divorce in hell, the shaded place, they just keep moving further away from one another. They keep moving out and pushing the limits of hell to ever new frontiers. But fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fear of the Lord is at its heart about accepting the limits, both of what it means to be human, to be created with the blessing and the goodness of God who loves us, but also to, who has designed our lives to flourish within the confines of a right relationship to Him. To fear God is to embrace limits, not as a means of oppression, but as a gift of freedom. Wendell Berry says of limits, to recover limits is to rediscover the knowledge that some things, though they are limited, are inexhaustible. This is the call of wisdom for us today, to embrace our own limits on the path to finding the inexhaustible wisdom of the love of God. And as it is with every word, every promise, every commandment that we are given in the library of Scripture, Jesus of Nazareth has lived this out. Colossians 2 verse 3 says that all treasures of wisdom and knowledge are held in the hands of Jesus Christ. Think about the limits that Jesus accepted throughout his life. And, and this is so astonishing. You know, we talked about limits earlier on that we did not choose. Limits that are just a fact of life in some way. In God pouring himself out in the incarnation, in some way, God chose the very specific limits of, of Jesus of Nazareth as a means of revealing himself to us. Jesus was born to peasant parents in a no-name town. Jesus spent most of the 33-some-odd years of his life in obscurity. The Son of God anonymously walking the streets of, of, of first-century Palestine. He was making furniture or masonry. You know, if you read the Gospels, this is just an interesting aside. But so often, especially Matthew picks up on this, Jesus is always walking by the sea. And his first disciples are fishermen. You know what I think? I think Jesus was born into a family of carpenters, and that was the trade that he was given because that's what it means to be born into a family in this day. I think Jesus really loved the sea. I think Jesus really at his heart wanted to be a fisherman and that was the place where he came alive. But in some way, Jesus reveals the fullness and the beauty of God by embracing limits. Jesus' life was thoroughly and truly defined by limits. When Satan tempts Jesus, he says, he says look, there's some stones over there. You certainly have the power. You haven't eaten for 40 days. Just turn some of those stones into bread. But Jesus embraced the limits of not responding to his own needs, not just doing things because he could, but only doing things that were an expression of the will of the Father, as he says in John's Gospel. Jesus doesn't treat his power as divine, as something to be randomly accessed, but only as a way of bringing God glory. And in the ultimate expression of embracing limits, Jesus is nailed to a cross. In what seems like embracing the limits of finality, but in being nailed to a cross, Jesus extends the limitless love of God. In being nailed to a cross and being placed in a certain place, in this certain posture, Jesus embraces the entire world. 
Jesus embraced limits in order that he might express the limitless love of God for us. And friends, for us to embrace limits is much in kind. It is our way of responding to God's love. It is a way that we open ourselves up to the limitless love of God, to expressing that in our homes and in our lives and allowing God's spirit without measure to be poured into our hearts. To embrace limits is not to be confined. To embrace the limits that God has for us is to provide a space for flourishing and for beauty. We are like the canvases that God paints on, or as Paul says, we are God's letters. We carry around this treasure in earthen vessels and jars of clay. And so friends, this morning, I pray that we can receive the gift of limits, not as a means of confinement or oppression or God trying to press us down into this singular image, but to see that just as an artist constructs a canvas just as an artist looks at a specific medium and says, I can bring beauty out, out of that. God is looking at the confines of our lives and is saying, when we stay in these spaces, he is bringing forth his flourishing, his thriving, and his beauty. So may we embrace the gift of limits this morning. May we embrace the fear of the Lord as the beginning of knowledge. And within that fear, there is an embrace of a limitless love. Let us pray. Beautiful Jesus, God, we embrace your limits, not as, a, not as a curse, God, but as a gift. So God, where we have transgressed limits, whether it be limits of, of holiness, God, where we are uh, just feeding our sinful appetites and not responding uh, to the goodness that you have shown us, God, not pursuing the life that you have for us, God, within, within the bounds and the confines of the, of the life that you've set up for us, God, would you forgive us as you promised you would? God, where we've traversed limits trying to take control of situations we have no control over, where we're trying to convince ourselves that we are somehow God, that we are captains of our own fate, God, would you forgive us? God, would you help us to see that to, to loose control of the reins, to give of ourselves to you is to find ourselves in the safest place that we can be. And God, would you help us to see that to embrace limits is to understand what it means to be human. To embrace limits is to invite rest and Sabbath and joy into our lives. God, that you are giving of yourself endlessly so that we do not have to work endlessly. God, you are giving of yourself limitlessly so we can embrace the gift of limits. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning. God, would you do something far beyond what we would ask or imagine in our midst? as we embrace the gift of limits. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.